God sent numerous prophets to the Jewish people. He did that over a period of many years, but one day the prophets stopped. And when the prophets stopped, there was a period of about 400 years where it seemed like God was silent. Now, if you were a Jew and you had been during that time seeing what was going on, you might not have thought much after the first month. Maybe after six months had passed and you were not seeing any prophets, you still would not have paid much attention. But what happens after a year? What happens after God is not sending a prophet after five years or ten years? At some point, people probably would have been scratching their head a little bit and thinking, it's been a long time since we've seen one of those pesky prophets. I wonder what's going on. You have to wonder with the Jewish people when prophets stopped showing whether or not the people were thinking, I wonder if God's still hearing our prayers. I wonder if God's doing anything because it does not seem like he is very active. As God's people go through this 400-year period, the world changes. Depending on how old you are, you may be able to look back a few decades and say the world has changed. That certainly was true for the Jewish people. They saw some great political changes. They saw some great religious changes. They also saw some big changes in society. It seemed like from a religious perspective, God was not doing very much perhaps. But as you look behind the scenes, you find that the God of the Bible was very, very active. The Jewish people had been taken captive by Babylon for 70 years. After Babylon went out of power, the Persian Empire came into power. When the Persians came into power, the Persians allowed the Jews to practice their religion. The Persians also allowed the Jews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Persians had their time, and then the Greeks come into power. And the Greeks did a number of things, some good, some bad. You may remember Alexander the Great. He overcame Persia, and he helped bring Greek culture and Greek language into the world. Because of that, you find that the Hebrew scriptures were eventually translated into the Greek language. We refer to that as the Septuagint or the LXX. There were some other things that took place, and then the Jews, they see some more changes. After Babylon, after Persia, after the Greeks, then finally Rome. Rome comes into power. Rome came into power about 63 BC, about 65 years before Jesus came into the world, and then the Jews found that they were under someone else's control, and that was Rome. After 400 years of silence, the world that people were living in was a world which was largely dissatisfied with religion. The Greeks could read the Septuagint that had been translated from the Hebrew scriptures, and they began to realize from that that there was in this holy book, if you will, a God that was completely unlike their God, a God which seemed to be a whole lot better than the pagan gods that they had served. The Jews, as those 400 years had passed, they had been under the control of Babylon, They'd been under the control of Persia. They'd been under the control of the Greeks. And then they were under the control of Rome. And they also were looking for something. There is no message from God. Our world is not a good place. 2,000 years ago, as we look at the world landscape, we find that this was a time which was ripe for religious revival. People were looking for something. The Jews and the Greeks, everybody was kind of looking around and thinking, where can we go? Who can we find? Is anything going to happen? God knew that the world was ripe for a change. And that's what we read about when we come to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. As you look at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if you count them up, and I've tried to highlight them so they're easier to see, you have seven distinct leaders. Now, not all of them are political leaders. You have two religious leaders. Luke gives a very detailed description. In fact, when you look at these seven leaders, it allows you to pinpoint exactly with great precision what period of time he's talking about. After 400 years of silence, 
God finally breaks into human history and he says something is going to take place. God did not speak, though, through the five political leaders that we have in Luke chapter 3. He didn't speak through a Jewish high priest, even though we have two of those men listed in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. God chose a man. God chose a man who was a prophet. And God used this prophet in a most unusual place. He had this prophet working in the wilderness. We might think that after 400 years, God would send someone to the capital city. We might think that he would send someone to Main Street in Jerusalem. But the God of heaven said, I'm going to break into the world and we're going to do this in a very unusual way. We're going to use this guy by the name of John. We're going to send him out there in the desert. Now, letting the Jews wait for 400 years meant that several generations had come and gone. There were a number of Jewish people who had lived their entire lifetime, and they'd heard about the prophets, and they could read what some of the prophets had written, but there were multiple generations who had never seen a true prophet from God. One day, though, 2,000 years ago, there is finally a prophet who shows up. There is this guy by John. The Jewish people have gone through all the major changes that we've talked about. John is talking to people who have gone through religious change, societal change, political change, and now God finally has a message. Well, if we were a Jew, we'd probably be thinking, what kind of message does God have? Is the message one of hope? Is the, one of, is the message one of peace? Is the message one of joy? What does God finally have to say after 400 years? Well, that's a real good question, and here it is. Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, he, that's John, John the Baptist came, he came preaching as a prophet of God, and the Bible says he came and he delivered a message of repentance. Out of all the things that God could have had a prophet say after 400 years, this guy shows up and he said, I'm telling you that you need to repent. Why on earth would God, after 400 years, say John needed to talk about repentance? Well, first of all, repentance is a message which applies to all people who are accountable for their actions. The word repent means to change. The word repent means to do a 180 degree turn. And that 180 degree turn, that change is always for the better. You may remember that in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said, repent or perish. Now this was a message that God really wanted preached. John did that, but this was a message that a lot of the Jews did not want to hear. As we look at our day and time, we find that there is a similar set of circumstances. Our world, by and large, is not too keen on the idea of repentance. Our world is filled with oodles of people who want to go their own way, they want to do their own thing, and they want to think as they choose to think. If God were to send a literal prophet, a real prophet, an inspired prophet today, this would surely be one of the messages that would still be preached in America. And it's important to preach because sometimes when we think about repentance, we find that people are simply ignorant. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're dumb. But there are some people who simply do not know that they need to repent. When this message was preached, Peter in Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, I know that you did something. I know that you did something wrong. But Peter says what you did wrong, that was calling for the death of Jesus Christ. He said you did that in ignorance. You didn't know. Because you didn't know, Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, you need to repent. Now, had some modern preachers been Peter, they would have said, well, that's okay. You were ignorant, perhaps you didn't know, but God is not too bothered by that. God will accept you as you are, you believe as you will, and you are good with God. That was not the message of Peter. That certainly was not the message of John the Baptist. Peter comes along, he's already talked about repentance in Acts chapter 2. Now when we come to the next chapter in Acts, Acts chapter 3, we find the same kind of message. God's message of repentance is to all. 
It is to the young, it is to the old. It is to the male, it is to the female. It is to the criminal, it is to the one who is seemingly law-abiding. It is to the rich, it is to the poor. It is to all who are old enough to know right and wrong. God says, you need to repent. You are not fine as you are. God says you cannot go to heaven unless you repent. You have sinned against God. That requires an action, this action of repentance. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 says, all men everywhere need to repent. Now that is a very brief statement, but that is about as universal as you can make it. All men everywhere. In the book of Acts, a little later, Acts chapter 19 and verse 19, we read about some people who were involved with magical arts. You might say that these people were involved with the um, occult. They were involved with black magic or Satanism. When the gospel of Christ was preached in Acts chapter 19 and verse 19, these individuals learned about, and these individuals were willing to do what is required by repentance. If you are familiar with some of the things taking place in America right now, You've seen some references to Satanism. There is a growing trend in some places to have after-school Satan clubs. If you see anything about modern Satanism, you will find that it is being presented as a tool to combat injustice, and it is a tool to promote science. You may not be aware of it, but next month in Boston, there is a weekend of blasphemy. A weekend of blasphemy. It is being marketed as the largest satanic gathering in history. Now that's in our country. Now it's not quite in our backyard, but that is in our nation. This convention, as I understand it, it is the second one. It is allegedly already sold out. The right response to Satanism is found in Acts chapter 19. A large number of people had satanic type material. There was a fire that was started and all that material was burned. How much was it worth? Luke says the dollar amount was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know about you, but when I find numbers in the Bible like that, I am always a little curious about how much that actually costs. Now today, you can actually at some point go out and do a little calculating and figuring out how much that is. One piece of silver was what people received for one day of work. So you can see how the math works. Now, if you don't want to do that, or if you don't have enough time to do that, I'll give you a couple hints. You can look at the money in this way. The amount of money being described would be how much 150 people make per year. So if you take an average salary of a person and you multiply that times 150, that's about the amount of money that we're looking at. Now, if you don't have a calculator handy, I'll give you at least this much. We're talking about several million dollars in today's terms. This stuff that's being described in Acts chapter 19, this was part of the occult. This was part of the devil, witchcraft, if you will. And in Acts chapter 19, we find that that stuff is not even remotely associated with the Christian life and with God. When a person repents, they leave this stuff alone. They get rid of it. Those involved with modern Satanism, if you talk to them, if you listen to them, they would say, oh, now wait, you misunderstand. We don't believe in a literal devil. All that stuff that's in the Bible, that's not true for us. There may be some people who actually believe that. If they do, they're ignorant. Or it may be that there are some people who make those claims and they're liars. That would not surprise us because in John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus said there are some people who are followers of the devil. Jesus said not only are some people followers of the devil, but he says the devil is a liar. He said the devil is the father thereof. So if you are following someone who is the father of lies, at least potentially, you may not be someone who tells the truth. Repentance calls for action. And as we look at Acts chapter 19, we find that action can sometimes be costly.
Imagine destroying, perhaps by fire, maybe another means, but imagine destroying something that we own, perhaps something that we use to sustain ourselves, perhaps something that we have worked for all of our life. And we hear about this God, we hear about his message for life, we understand what repentance is, and we take this thing that we have sacrificed for, we take this thing that we have worked for, we take this thing which is so precious to us, this is how we keep a house over our heads and how we keep food on the table and we burn our livelihood up. That's what the people in Acts chapter 19 did. God gave the world one of the most powerful messages ever after 400 years of silence. And that message still needs to be preached today, especially in America. When we think about the message of repentance, it is universal. We've already seen Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, Jesus said, repent or perish. He made it very clear. He made it very plain. Today, telling people that they are not okay. Letting people know that they need to repent. That is not a message that a lot of people will receive very well. But that's not a new issue. The message of repentance has always upset some people. We have a number of examples in the Bible of people who do not want to hear about repentance. When we look at our time, we find that there are people who try to bully Christians into silence. Don't talk about that. Don't say anything about that. They need to be allowed to do and say and think and be whatever they want to do. When we talk about repentance, there are charges such as you're involved with hate speech. You're someone who has some phobia. You're someone who lacks love. Or this winner, you are not a true Christian. Well, John the Baptist, he came along. He was talking about repentance as we've already seen. Do you know where he landed up? He ended up in jail. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12 says that he was put in prison. And it wasn't that he served a period of time and he got out. The Bible says that John the Baptist was executed. That's how he left prison. He was dead. Those uninterested in serving God hate to hear Joel 2 and verse 12. Yet even now the prophet said, saith Jehovah, turn ye unto me. That's repentance. Turn ye unto me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. God, when it comes to repentance, says you have to turn. Now, if he had said turn and didn't give us any more information, we might not know exactly what that means. But God didn't stop there. He said, you need to turn and turn to me. And then God said, you need to do something else. How fully do we need to turn, God? He said, you need to turn to me with all your heart. You need to make it a full turning. You need to complete the process. Don't be half-hearted. Don't be partially committed. Don't say, God, we're going to give you this percent of our life. God says, I want your entire heart. I want your complete life. Now, some claim or some feel that they turn to God, but their decision is half-hearted. Repentance means if someone has left, if someone is not headed in the right way, that they come back and they come back all the way. You may remember that Jesus gave a story about a man with two sons in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. There was the older son, he decided to stay home with Ed. There's the young son, he decided to leave, and he did leave. Jesus said that that young son went into a far country. He was away for a long time. At one point, he decided that it might be a good thing to come back. But he procrastinated. Sometimes when it comes to repentance today, there are people who procrastinate for a while. They're thinking, I should do this, and I know what's right, and I really hope to do what's right, and one day I will come back. One day I will fix things with God, but it's not going to be today, and it's probably not going to be tomorrow, and I really can't foresee that any time in the near future, but somehow, someday, I will get it done. 
Well, the man procrastinated for a time, but he did not procrastinate forever. Eventually, that young man decides, hey, it is better back home. That's where I need to be. And that young man sets his sights on home. He says, that is where I have to go, and that is exactly what he did. When you look at Luke chapter 15, you find that repentance may seem like it is a long, it may seem like it is a difficult, it perhaps may seem like it is an impossible journey. Luke chapter 15, though, tells us that it is possible, and it is possible for each one. If the need for repentance is in our life now, if it is ever in our life, and we're thinking the way back is difficult, it's going to be complicated, it's going to be embarrassing, it's going to cost me something, it's going to be a very long trip for me. Do it. Regardless of what others may think, regardless of what others may say, repentance is always worth the cost, and that is true every single time. Staying away is never, ever the right choice. And refusing to come back is a losing proposition every single time. The smart and the right move is always repentance. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, we find something else. When we think about repentance... Our focus might always be the non-Christian. It is the non-Christian. It is the person who is not in a right relationship with God uh, because they've never become a Christian. That's the person that needs to repent. Well, there is truth in that, but that's not the entire story. When we think about repentance, we find that it can be a need for those in the body of Christ. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus is talking to an entire congregation. He says to that church, remember, therefore, when you're fallen, you have gotten off the wrong, right track. You're on the wrong track. Jesus says you need to remember what's right. You need to repent. You need to go back and do what's right. You need to again engage in the first works or bad things are going to happen. Moving down a little bit more, we find some additional passages which are important. Repentance is possible for every single person as long as they're on the earth. However, some refuse. We know that because of a story in Luke chapter 16. Jesus talked about two men. He says one of those men entered into the afterlife and he was not in a good state. He did not like the eternal consequences for his choices on the earth. This man wanted someone to come back from the dead and wanted that person, Lazarus, to talk to his dead family, talk to his family members before they died. Now that man suspected or that man believed that his family had not repented or would not repent and they would join him in the horror that he was experiencing. In another text where we see repentance, we see Luke chapter 13. Jesus talked about a tree. It was a fig tree. Jesus said that the fig tree would not bear any figs. In the story, they were going to chop down that tree. But there was someone who intervened and said, now wait a minute, before we chop down the tree, before there is no hope left for the tree, let's work with it for a little time. Let's give it a little more time. Let's give it some fertilizer and see if it will not produce figs. Untold people have thought that they would repent one day. And maybe in their mind, they were truly sincere. But that day, for whatever reason, never came. Sometimes it never comes because people are too stubborn. In the book of Amos, chapter 4 and verse 6, it's a strange passage, but God said, I gave you clean teeth. As a young person, I read that and I thought, what does that mean? Clean teeth. Well, it wasn't talking about toothpaste. He was talking about a famine. God says, because you have not been willing to repent, because you are not willing to do my will, God says, I cut off your food supply. I gave you a famine. Times became hard. In fact, as you read the next verse, Amos chapter 4 and verse 7, God says, I stopped the rain three months before harvest time. Now, what do you think that's going to do to your crops? 
things are going well, crops are growing, and you're thinking, oh, just three more months, and boy, we're going to have a great harvest. God said, I'm going to shut off the spigot. No more rain for you. That's what he did because people would not repent. As you continue to read through Amos chapter 4, God says, I also did this. I allowed some rain in these cities, but I did not allow rain in these cities because you would not repent. Amos pictures people who are so thirsty, so desperate, so needy for water that they are literally staggering from one city to another because they're dehydrated. They're pleading, they're begging for God, but they will not repent. For one reason or another, some refuse to repent regardless of how bad things get. Now, some finally do change. We know that because in Acts chapter 9 and verse 5, there is a fellow by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus finally gets on board with God and his program. For a time, Saul refused to repent. He had an ignorance problem. Saul believed, I mean, he really believed that it was right to persecute Christians and Christianity. One day, though, he realizes his error and he changes. Oftentimes, there are good people who simply don't know what they need to do. They don't realize that they need to repent. And that is why God has authorized this message to be taught. But there are some other people who do know. There are some other people who could repent and they have enough knowledge to. Jesus described that kind of person through John as a viper in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. Repentance is possible for every single person as they make their spiritual journey on the earth. And thankfully, God gives us that opportunity up until the time we draw our last breath. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 27, we have a man who was about ready to take his life. This is the story of the jailer. He has some prisoners locked up. It's about midnight. He's asleep. He's thinking that everything is good, and as he's resting, there's an earthquake. The prison house is damaged by the earthquake. The cells open up, and this man who knows he's responsible for the prisoners, and if they leave uh, without authority, it's probably going to cost him his life. So he wakes up. He's thinking that disaster has struck. The place has been shaken to the point where the cell doors are open. The prisoners have escaped. He takes a sword. He is ready to end his life. And he would have ended his life. But Paul cries out. He tells him that everybody's there. He talks to him about the gospel of Christ. And that man repented. And he received the forgiveness of sins. What about us? What about me? What about you? Have we repented? Oh, maybe we believe in Jesus. And we might even confess him. And that thing about baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, we even believe that. But the one thing that really has been the problem for us is saying yes to repentance. There's something over here, maybe more than one thing, which says, I can't give this up. I'm stuck here. Well, there have been a lot of people who felt like that. But it is a matter of will. It is a matter of choice. And it is something that is necessary. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. All men everywhere need to repent. Shaking loose of some things can be difficult, but it's not impossible. Sometimes it takes a little more time for one than another. But in every single case, it's doable. This morning, if you believe, and if you would be willing to confess that Christ is the Son of God, and you're even ready to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if repentance is the thing that's causing you to say, I just can't become a Christian, give it some serious thought. It is repent or perish. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. If you have become a Christian, that's not an end in and of itself. There's also that need for repentance. First John talks about confession. Well, of course, repentance precedes confession. And if we can help you with repentance, to encourage you, to pray with you, to study with you, whatever we can do, repentance is required 
And if we can help, we want to do that as we stand and sing.